Here's our text for this morning. It's James 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. So a couple months ago, when I was thinking about what I would preach on this Sunday, and and I could choose anything because this isn't part of a series, it's a standalone sermon. The thought crossed my mind, why don't I preach on the uh, passage that I least like in all of scripture? And so that's what I'm doing this morning. (laughs) But I'm actually in really good company. One of my heroes, Martin Luther, the man responsible for the Reformation, uh, said that the book of James was an epistle of straw. He couldn't stand James. It, It drove him crazy. Now, he decided to include it in his translation of the Bible, but he put it way in the back. Because he said, like, if you get to it, good, but don't worry about getting to it. Uh, Because he said in the book of James, the name of Christ is only mentioned twice. And there's no mention of the death and resurrection of Christ. And this passage in particular drove Martin Luther crazy. Because to him, it seemed completely contradictory to New Testament theology. It seemed to be directly opposing what Paul tells us in Romans 3.28, which says, for we know That man is justified by faith and not by works of the law. So when I set out to study this text and to prepare for today, I thought what I would be bringing this morning was a sermon that shows that both statements are true, that they're not contradicting each other. But what Jesus taught me was so much more exciting than that. 
Uh, and so I don't even really want to talk about that. But I feel like I need to address it just so that if you're out there and you're thinking, well, the Bible contradicts itself, then this is all a sham. I, let me, it's not contradicting itself. And, you know, I read lots of scholars, um, lots of theologians talking about what was going on here. Uh, and, and what I've concluded from what they have said is that James and Paul loved each other. That they knew each other. We know that they were together at the Council of Jerusalem as recorded in Acts 15. We also know that they hung out together uh, in Acts 22. That James was the pastor of the Jerusalem church. A church that was primarily to Jewish believers. And Paul was, of course, the main missionary to the Gentiles. And both had the mission of proclaiming Christ. They had different audiences. And James seems to be a particularly gifted communicator. It it seems to me that James, knowing full well Paul's tagline that you're justified by faith alone, and knowing what Paul has said about our justification, is taking the very words of Paul and saying them in an outrageous way to wake us up. That's what a good communicator does. It takes something that you've heard over and over again and says it differently so that you go, what? I mean, didn't you when I read that? I hope some of you were like, what? And in that way, James is not unlike Martin Luther. If you've read any of Martin Luther's writings or his sermons, the man said outrageous things. He he was known for going in and just blasting people, uh, disrupting their entire view of something for the purpose of getting them to stop and think and to dig deeper, dig below the surface, dig below what, what you just think naturally. Oftentimes, these outrageous preachers have a best friend who's a lot more mild-mannered and gentle. And Martin Luther had one like that. His name was Philip Melanchthon. And Philip loved Martin Luther. He loved to watch him preach. He loved to watch him just completely disrupt a crowd. And then Philip would come up behind him and be like, okay, I know you're kind of in shock right now, but let me say it this way. And Philip, when he's talking about this passage in James, he says... We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. See, James knew he was saved by faith. Earlier in this chapter, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he talks about us being um, chosen by God. That we're heirs of the kingdom. The words chosen and heir are the words of grace. They're not the words of works righteousness. But he's saying this obviously because he wants us to wake up. He wants us to see something different. I tweeted that I was preaching on this text and a friend I've made through Twitter, I've never met her, but we tweet together. Um, She said, I'm real interested in what you're going to say about this text because as a hell bound legalist, James was my favorite book. And that passage in particular was the one I I loved to quote to my grace-abusing friends. So my prayer as I've been reading and studying this text is that this morning, Jesus would take back this passage from hell-bound legalist. So let's pray that he would do that. Join me in praying. Jesus, uh, I already know you're here. Your presence is here. Your Holy Spirit has made himself known in this room as we worship you. As we look at your holiness and as we look at how far we have fallen from that. But now as we take this passage, your word, your word, you are the word. 
You're the word made flesh and you've given us your word to teach us and speak to us and remind us of the truth. And it's living and active. And so I pray this morning that it would be that and that we would hear you. And Father, I surrender my thoughts and my mouth and my heart. I surrender myself to say whatever it is that you want to say. Forgive me for when I make it about me. I want it to be about you. I want that to be my heart's cry. So come, Jesus, and speak to us. Amen. As a teenager, one of the scariest things that I ever heard Jesus say was, uh, many will come claiming my name. And they'll say, look at what I did and look at this good work and look at how I healed these people. And then Jesus says, he'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. That was terrifying as a teenager. I mean, I used to spend sleepless nights worried about that verse. And and even now, some days I can't sleep thinking about that. But what I was so excited to discover as I prayed and read through this text that we're studying this morning is that Jesus was saying to me and to us, I want to show you how you know your faith is real. I want to give you something so that when you're lying in your bed at night and you're doubting that you really believe and you're doubting that you're really his and you're doubting that you're really loved, I want you to know that you know. And in this passage, he gives us four signs. He gives us two signs that often we look at and think, well, maybe this means that I'm really his, that my faith is really real. And he he takes these two signs and he says, nope, these signs should not bring you comfort at night. But then he offers us two signs that should. So we're gonna start with the ones that should not bring us comfort at night. In verse 19, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. I have to just tell you this real quick. I was reading a commentary and this man um, tried to make an entire point about how we are to be gentlemen um, through that verse. Uh, He said, "Look look at the gentlemanliness of James. He looks and finds something affirming in the other person and affirms it before he corrects them. No, James was not being a gentleman. He was... He was being sarcastic. He was saying, you believe that? So do the demons. So often we try to clean up our leaders, make them less human, make them more perfect. No, James is saying, wake up. I mean, his church was to Jewish believers. They grew up knowing the Old Testament. Many of them knew the first five books of the Bible by heart. But all of them would know the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. That was their statement of faith. That was their Apostles' Creed, if you will. If you wanted to be included in the people of God, you knew that phrase. And you said it and you said you believed it. And what James is saying here is you can believe all the right stuff. You can spout out the right doctrine, the right theology. And that doesn't mean anything more than something that the demons themselves do and have. I've made it well known on social media what I think about seminary. I have been a seminary student for seven 
years. <laughs> and my dislike of it, really, if I'm being truthful, isn't um, what I'm studying. It isn't my professors. It's not even the workload. It's my own insecurity. You know, going in to the seminary and, and I want so badly to be proved right and I want to be seen as worthy and acceptable. And when I walk into that classroom, I just feel inadequate and think, oh, one day they're going to find out and I'm going to be seen as a fraud. And there's this one professor in particular that I have tried my best to avoid. And the reason is, is because he's so smart. I mean, I've heard people talk about him in a way that says a hundred years from now, when people go back to try to study theology and want to know what's happening in our generation when it comes to theology, that they'll study this man. That a hundred years from now, Dr. John Frame's works will be studied. That's terrifying to me. I don't want to sit under someone that smart. And the worst part is the class that he teaches, which I ended up taking because I had to, uh, the class that he teaches, part of your grade, you come into class prepared. And then he'll ask a question and he'll just look down the roll and he'll call your name. And how you answer the question is how you get graded. It's terrifying. <laughs> but you know what? I love John Frame. And sitting in that class one day, I actually even cried. And not because I was so scared or because I had blown the answer to the question. But one day... A student asked him a question and, and John Frame kind of was taken aback and he thought about it for a second and then he giggled. He giggled and he said, you know, I don't know. And the more I think about it, I don't know that I'll ever know the answer to that. But God is God and he loves me. You can have the theology of John Frame, but unless you giggle... Unless you have a childlike faith that when you're asked something you don't know, you say, I don't know, but God is God and he loves me. It means nothing. It is no more than what the demons have. Jonathan Edwards, a preacher in the 1700s, uh, he loved the gospel and he loved grace, but he's delivered some of the scariest sermons I've ever read. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is his most famous one. But he wrote a sermon or he delivered a sermon on this particular text. And, and he titled the sermon, True Grace distinguished from the experience of demons. True grace distinguished from the experience of demons. And in it, he says, oh, beware of your right doctrine. For demons have been educated in the best divinity school in the universe, the heaven of heavens. Spurgeon, another famous pastor, when he talked about this verse, he says, I have no doubt Demons are very orthodox. I do not know which church they belong to, though there are some in all churches. We're part of a denomination, the PCA, that is rigorous in testing its ministers for orthodoxy and right doctrine. And I can pretty much guarantee you, if you were to go to any PCA church in the world, you're going to hear a, a sermon that is solid theologically. But I can't guarantee you that it won't be being preached by a demon. So a sign that you maybe are holding on to, that you are his, that you have true faith, is that you believe the right stuff. That you can spout good doctrine. The second sign 
that should not give you peace at night comes at the end of that verse where he says, even the demons believe and shudder. Jonathan Edwards spends a lot of time talking about what shuddering looks like. And he describes shuddering as being aware of the greatness and the power of God. And in being so aware of the greatness and power of God means you might alter your behavior. You might even start doing some good things. But if your good works are, mutter, are, are motivated by a shuddering, by a fear, or even by the thought that God has power, so if I do this, then I'll get this. If, if your good works are motivated by fear, they should bring you no comfort as to the reality of your faith. So now let's get to the good signs. The first sign that you can know that you have true faith, saving faith, is if you move towards brokenness. Does seeing brokenness and mess create in you a sense of indifference and judgment? Or do you want to move towards it? James begins this argument by giving us a hypothetical situation in which someone is poor. Someone is in need of clothing and food. He gives a very specific example. Uh, One that if you read the letter of James, you see that that was a problem in that church. How they treated the poor was a problem. And so he's taking this specific example and exposing to them that when they see mess and brokenness and poverty, that they look away. That maybe they offer words, but they, they don't do anything. And poverty is a great example. But what about when you encounter moral poverty or spiritual poverty? What is your reaction? Do you move towards it? See, true faith has stood at the cross and realized that all you have to bring is your sin and your shame and disgrace. That that you you are spiritually completely bankrupt. So when you encounter any kind of bankruptcy, That should remind you of the truth of what you believe. Steve Brown often says we're just beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. A sign that you have true faith is when you see brokenness, you move towards it. You say, hey, I'm broken too. But come here, I got to show you something. I got to take you to where there's healing and where there's hope. I, with uh, almost everyone else in the country and maybe even in the world, went and saw the movie adaptation of the musical Les Mis uh, this week. And the thought that I left with, that that I kept thinking in my head, was what would it look like to give away the candlesticks? Now, if you haven't seen the movie or you haven't seen the play that the movie's based on or read Victor Hugo's novel or seen one of the several movie adaptations of that story that have that have been, uh, the story is about Jean Valjean. He's a man who was in prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. And the story really begins with his parole. And after 19 years of hard labor, of prison, you see a man who is just mad who has a heart of stone, who has vengeance on his mind. And when he gets out, it only gets harder because every person he encounters 
treats him with disgust and disdain. No one will give him work. No one will give him a place to stay until he happens upon a priest. And the priest invites him in and sets a feast before him. There's a great scene in the movie where Jean Valjean is is just devouring the food set before him. And the priest, without making a big deal about it, without correcting Jean Valjean's behavior, he just prays a blessing over the food. And he says, thank you, Lord, for my honored guest. This criminal was his honored guest. And that night he offers Jean Valjean a a room, a, a bed to sleep in. But instead of taking advantage of that, Jean Valjean goes through the house and collects anything he can find of value, anything that's silver, goblets, plates, and he makes off. Well, the next morning, the local authorities bring Jean Valjean back to the priest and they throw him at the priest's feet and they say, this man, we caught him. And he said, you gave him these things. And the priest looks down at him and says, I did. And my friend, you left in such a hurry You forgot to take the best that I had offered you. And he walks over to the table, picks up two silver candlesticks and hands them to Jean Valjean. That'll preach. That's a great illustration. And I haven't met anyone who sees that scene and isn't moved. But that's a story. Does that really work? I mean, in the story, we see the rest of Jean Valjean's life play out. And we see a man who changes, whose heart becomes soft, who loves other people, who is truthful, even to the point of losing his own freedom. And that he goes into battle as an old man to save a younger man. Jean Valjean's life is littered with good works after that one encounter with grace. But does that really work? Think about this. Jean Valjean was in prison for stealing. He gets out of prison and he steals again. And what does the priest do? He not only covers his sin, but he gives him more. That sounds like really bad church discipline to me. <laughs> this week I had the, it's, it's great. Christmas break is great because so many former students come back. And I had the privilege of having coffee with one of our students. And he grew up in this church. He was baptized here. He, he came to know who Jesus was here and accepted Jesus as his savior. And as we're talking, he, he started telling me about when he decided to come out and how he's been discarded by this church. Now, he didn't say it angry. And he didn't say like, oh, I, I hate them for doing that. He didn't even seem that sad. Actually, as he talked about it, he was pretty numb. And he even said, I, you know, I, I know I'm messy. I, I know I'm a messy person. And, and I know that I might even be blatantly choosing sin. I don't know. I just know how I am. And as I looked at him, the thought that kept coming to my mind was, what would it look like for us to give him candlesticks? See, right before James makes this argument, the the very verse before it, 2.13 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So how you know that you have real faith is you move towards brokenness. And you move towards brokenness with mercy. Second sign is you're brave. 
Lucille Ball said, I'm not funny, I'm just brave. You see, true faith causes us to actually live life. Jesus said, I've come to give them life and give it abundantly. So someone who really believes lives a life of risk and adventure because what the cross tells us is that God's plan for us, God's purpose for us is far greater than our potential. And someone who believes in a God who has a much better plan than your potential does things that don't make sense, that are risky, that are brave. I often tell our teenagers, your problem isn't so much that you're bad, it's that you're bored. We've given our teenagers a faith that is so boring. So the most risk they feel like they can engage in is with sex and drugs and alcohol. That's bull. Following Jesus is a risky endeavor. My counselor often tells me that I underestimate the bravery it would take to do something. But she reminds me over and over again. She says, Zach, just keep asking God to make so clear to you the need that he has fashioned your heart to follow. If you're his, if you have true faith, there is a need that God has fashioned your heart specifically to follow and to act on. And a sign that you have true faith is you see that need and you go for it. James gives us two great examples of this and how gracious of God and who these people are. The people that God elevates as being examples of good works are an adulterous liar and a prostitute. Abraham and Rahab. I read a Spurgeon sermon on Rahab and I just, I have to read to you what he wrote because he says it much better than I could. Spurgeon says of Rahab, God has people where we little dream of it. And he has chosen ones among a sort of people whom we dared not hope for. Who would think that grace could grow in the heart of one who was a harlot by name as though her sin were openly known to all? Yet it grew there like a fair flower blooming upon a dunghill. Or a bright star glittering on the brow of night. There her faith grew and brought forth glory to God. I don't know if anyone in here makes their living as a prostitute. But I do know that there's a lot of sin in this room. And there's been a lot of vile acts committed. And people have done some really dirty things. Me being one of them. And if you're sitting there and you're feeling gross and you're feeling disgusted with yourself and you're feeling like a whore, let this be what Jesus says to you today. God, for my sake, delights in using the lowest of low and the vilest of vile to bring forth glory. No one in here is beyond bringing glory to God. Rahab was crazy brave. I mean, remember the story? I mean, Rahab grew up in a family that didn't tell her about the true God, a loving God. She grew up in a culture in which there was no moral compass. 
in which people just used and took advantage of each other. And her profession itself was a profession in which she was objectified and used over and over and over and over again. How in the world would she believe in a loving God? But Rahab hears the story of these slaves that were delivered by a good God from the hand of Pharaoh. And she thinks he can deliver me. So when some of these escaped slaves, these ones that have been rescued by God, come to her door seeking shelter and and, and safe haven from the authorities who are out after them, she invites them in. She hides them and then she helps them escape. That was risky. She could have lost her life. But because she had true faith, she was brave. And Abraham, oh man, Abraham. Uh, we've just been studying Abraham uh, with the students. And I'm amazed by this narrative. I mean, God constantly is reminding Abraham over and over again of his promise and his call on Abraham's life. And the times that Abraham does believe don't last that long. And as soon as, as, soon as things don't happen the way Abraham thinks or don't happen as fast as, as he wants them to, he takes matters into his own hands. I mean, God promised him the promised land and on their journey there, he gets scared and he lies about the identity of his wife. And and, and he says she's his sister and he allows his wife to be taken to the bedchamber of the king. And then when God promises that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars and that even though he and Sarah, his wife, are in their old age, God will provide a child. When that doesn't happen as fast as Abraham wants, he takes his servant and sleeps with her. This man is who we are given as an example of good works. But what was the work that James refers to? Well, it refers to when God asked Abraham after he had given him this son that he had promised he would give. He said, now I want you to go and sacrifice him for me. Blows me away that Abraham doesn't fight, doesn't argue. He doesn't say anything. Because previously in Abraham's life, you see him debating and talking with God very openly. I mean, just a few chapters earlier, he's fighting for Sodom and Gomorrah. But he's not fighting for the life of his one and only son. And the story tells us that Abraham took his son and made a three-day journey. Three days. He had to think about this. And at some point, Isaac, while he's carrying the wood on his back, looks and realizes, wait a second, we didn't bring an animal to sacrifice. He says, dad, where's the sacrifice? And God, I mean, and Abraham says to him, the Lord will provide. Then the story goes, they get on top of the hill and they lay the wood out and then Abraham places Isaac on the altar. It says he straps him down. And then he lifts up his knife, ready to pierce the flesh of his one and only son. And a voice out of heaven says, stop, don't hurt the boy. Now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your one and only son from me. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Go And offer it as a substitute. 
One of the reasons Martin Luther hated James was because James didn't talk about the death of Christ. He didn't talk about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for our sins. But if we know the story of the cross, if we know the story of Calvary, how can we not remember that when we hear the story of Abraham and Isaac? James, again, being a brilliant communicator, communicates the truth of the atonement through telling a story. Because when we hear that story, we see the cross. When we think of Isaac making his way up that hill with wood on his back, we think of our Savior carrying the cross up Calvary. And when we, when we, when we think of Isaac being strapped down, we think of Jesus being strapped to the cross and, and held there by nails. And then when we think of God saying, stop, don't harm the boy, we can't help but think of the silence of God as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we see, we see that that ram caught in the thicket that God said substitute it instead was Jesus. That Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. We deserve death, but Jesus said, I will take the death and I will give you my righteousness. There's two ways you could respond to this sermon that would be awful. One would be you leave here and try to find a poor person or a gay person and show them mercy. Or you go and do something risky just to prove that you have faith. The other way would be how, how I would probably respond to this sermon. And actually, how I, was, how I was responding to the text initially. And just doubt and say, I don't think I have true faith then. I, I, I don't risk enough. I don't believe enough. I, I, I don't think that I'm compassionate enough, that I always move towards brokenness. It actually scares me. And then this is what I heard Jesus say. He said, look at me. I'm true faith. You know, my problem is that I'm prideful. My, my problem is the same reason I don't like seminary is I want to be able to do it on my own. I want to be self-sufficient. And if I can't figure out how I can do it on my own, then it's not worth it. But later in James, James 4, 6, James says, God gives more grace. He gives greater grace. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So as I studied this text and as I felt you know, convicted about how I lack compassion and how I lack bravery and how I put so much stock in what I believe, Jesus said, be humble. Come to the cross. That's the place where pride gets disrupted and humility blooms. And when you're at the cross, you'll see me. And you'll see me as true faith. I moved towards brokenness. I did. And I acted bravely for you. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he went off to a garden to pray. And 
the text said he was in such agony because he saw before him the cross as he was praying. He knew what lied before him. And it wasn't just a physical death. He saw the brokenness of morality and the brokenness of spirituality. And he said, that's too much. Oh my, to experience the full wrath of brokenness, to experience the full wrath of God against sin. And he pleaded and it said he dropped sweat of blood. But then John tells us that the guards showed up that were there to arrest him. And the, the disciples had all fallen asleep. And, and so they were awakened from their sleep by these armed men. And there was panic and there was chaos. And it says that Jesus stood up from where he prayed and he walked towards the commotion. And he said to the soldiers, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And John tells us that the soldiers all fell back. <laughs> you know, they fell to the ground and, and they were scurrying to find their weapons that they had dropped because when you encounter that kind of bravery, it scares you. But then it says that Jesus moved towards them again and he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. I got to see two movies this week, so it was a really good week for me. And I knew I was going to see Jesus in Les Mis. I did not, however, know I would see Jesus in the Quentin Tarantino film, Django Unchained. But I did. Django is a slave before the Civil War. And he gets bought by this white German bounty hunter. And the German bounty hunter explains to Django that he's looking for these three men. But he has no idea what they look like. And so he says, Django, I need you to point them out to me. And then he tells him, you know, I'm actually opposed to the slavery thing. I think it's horrible. But I'm going to use it to my advantage. And once we found these three guys, you're a free man. One night they're sitting by the campfire and this German bounty hunter asked Django, he says, hmm, what are you going to do with your freedom? And Django says, well, I'm going to work and I'm going to make some money. And when I have enough, I'm going to go buy my wife back. She was sold to a different plantation in Mississippi. German bounty hunter kind of licks his lips, thinks for a second. And he says, I don't think that's a good idea. He said, you may be free, but you're still black. And a black man going to Mississippi to buy a black woman, that's not going to turn out good. And Django looks at him and says, what do you care? What do you care what I do with my freedom? And this white German bounty hunter looks at him and says, you know, I've never set anyone free before. And now that I have, I feel responsible to make sure you're okay. And then this bounty hunter stays with Django. And together they go and fight for Django's wife. Brothers and sisters, Jesus said he came to set us free. And that's what he did. He set us free. 
And I know that Jesus feels responsible to make sure we're okay. For Philippians 1.6 says, For he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. And I'm so glad that even my good works are still all about grace. Amen. As we receive our tithes and offerings, I'm going to pray for them. But after I pray, we're going to show you a short video. And if you didn't listen to my sermon or if you dozed off, that's okay. Um, Because this video in in five minutes will do what I just spent a long time doing. So, um, So let's pray together. Father, um, we have nothing. The cross tells us that we bring nothing of value um, but that which took your life. And so um, as gratitude that we have been redeemed and forgiven, we give back to you. And, And we pray that this would be used to move towards brokenness in our community and in our world. I pray that as a church, moving into a new year, that we would act bravely. We would act bravely because we're following one whose plan for us is far greater than our potential. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Amen.